Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained. With me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. This week, we're learning all about investigations, the risks and rewards, and talking to the FT's Dan McCrum all about it. With me in the studio this week, I have Press Gazette's UK editor, Charlotte Tobit. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Dom. So you've been speaking to Dan McCrum at the FT about Wirecard, but also about the the broader issue of investigations and why publications should get into them. And I remember Dan won um, Journalist of the Year a couple of years ago at our awards for his part in the Wirecard investigation, which I think just a in a nutshell, basically brought down one of the biggest, fastest growing, most important financial companies in Germany at the time, basically by revealing that they were a bunch of crooks. I think some of them are still on the run, aren't they? Some of the people they exposed. The chief operating officer, Jan Martinek, is, yeah, funny enough, when I was speaking to Dan, he had the wanted poster of Jan Martinek with two pictures of him in the background over his shoulder. And he was obviously talking to me from home. So, I thought that symbolised quite well, like how much this story has pervaded his life. <laughs> it's been one he's going to talk about for years to come, I should think. But why are we talking to Dan this week? Last week, on the 16th of September, Netflix put out a 90-minute documentary basically following the story. Lots of FT journalists involved, lots of Dan himself, lots of his colleagues, such as Stefania Palmer, who was in Singapore at the time, and Paul Murphy, who is investigations editor, and the then FT editor Lionel Barber appears as well. The documentary is called Scandal, Bringing Down Wirecard, and yes, the German pronunciation is deliberate, it is spelt that way. I was lucky enough to go to the premiere last week as well, which was held in Mayfair, Um and to be honest, it's a really good documentary, really tight. There are so many complicated issues in this Wirecard story, money laundering, loads of complicated stuff to do with short selling, which they explain really well. Towards the end, stuff about Russian spies and Libyan mercenaries and stuff comes in and you're like, what? <laughs> I thought this story can get any more complicated. Now yeah, I've got this to deal with as well. But it explains it all really well. Dan's basically talking about that and he's obviously hoping that it will bring the story to lots more people sort of as exciting as financial journalism gets i imagine i remember there was all sorts of private investigators involved and 
journalists being targeted themselves and all sorts. So Dan's doing the rounds to promote Scandal, and uh, we're going to hear more about that. But I think we're also going to hear some more sort of actionable insights for publishers about what we can learn from the FT's approach to investigations. Is that right, Charlotte? Yeah, see, Dan definitely shared some really interesting thoughts about why all the time and resources they poured into the Wirecard investigation, and as they do for other investigations too, why that's well worth it and worth doing despite how difficult investigative journalism can be. So we're going to hear about that, but to start with, Dan does his own very good and useful summary of the Wirecard story for anyone who wants to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. I'll try and give you the quick overview because the story kind of took over my life for a while and it was pretty intense for two years. But really, way back in 2014, I start looking at this funny little tech company because of a tip from a hedge fund manager. And it does something to do with payments, moving money around for credit card payments. And its accounts don't look right. But there's also this theory that maybe it's involved with money laundering. And so I write a bunch of stories. Some stock market speculators called short sellers come along and make a load of noise about the money laundering angle. And nothing really happens. The company carries on, goes from strength to strength. Until in 2018, it enters Germany's DAX index, the equivalent of the FTSE 100. And suddenly, this company is one of the largest tech companies in Europe. It's worth almost 30 billion dollars. And the CEO is strutting around on stage like some sort of Steve Jobs in a black turtleneck, predicting the cashless society and Wirecard's going to make huge amounts of money. And everyone's lapping it up. But at that point, this whistleblower gets in touch with this truck full of documents that basically show there's a bunch of strange little frauds happening inside the company. I spent a couple of months investigating this, write the story. Everyone goes a little bit crazy. Eight billion euros gets knocked off Wirecard's stock market valuation. And then the story gets really weird, where the company says, the Financial Times is corrupt. This guy is working with stock market speculators to manipulate our share price. Me and my colleague Stefania Palmer get investigated by the German police. One of the world's biggest technology investors, SoftBank, shows up and gives the company a billion dollars. And it all builds to this crazy climax where we're being investigated. The FT decides it has to investigate itself to prove that it's not corrupt. We're trying to bring the company down. And eventually we publish a big story which says, look, it is a fraud. This is how they're doing it. These are the documents it's all based on. Please go and arrest everyone. And then the company staggers on for about another eight months. And then it finally collapses and goes from being worth, I don't know, 20 odd billion euros one day to within a week, it's bankrupt. And I haven't even mentioned the spies or the hacking or any of all that other good stuff. But in overview, that is the story. I'll move on to the spies and the hacking and all the other stuff because obviously, as you say, there were a lot of moments throughout this where there's a lot of sort of personal risk and maybe 
a lot more than you would ever usually expect, but it's crazy on a personal level as the journalists doing it. So how did that feel and what were the scariest moments? It's trying to convey this sense of creeping astonishment as we start to realize that one of the executives at this company is by day, he's giving presentations to investors and by night, he's this James Bond figure who is hanging out with Russian mercenaries and trying to build a Libyan militia force. And so you start to get very nervous because we realize private detectors are following us around. They seem to be trying to track our sources. We're having to take all sorts of precautions. And then you realize the main guy has connections to Russian intelligence, which is quite scary. And it's a strange thing because I know there are lots of journalists out there who face real tangible physical danger. And with this, it was always implicit because we knew they were dealing with nasty people. But you have that feeling in the back of your mind that if I get knocked off a bus, or fall in front of a train or out of a window, sorry, then that would make life easy for a lot of people. And it, it's a weird thing to live with that kind of paranoia, you know, sort of lying awake at night, staring at the ceiling, thinking, okay, so if there was a home invasion, what would be the appropriate action to take? That kind of just nagging fear. I think in the documentary, there's one moment where you you look emotional when you're saying about the Im- worrying about the impact, potential impact on your family. So was that a big element of it as well? Yeah, it's, again, it's a slightly difficult thing to talk about because just thinking of it then that image of sort of my very young son and going back to that moment starts to bring all the emotion of it back and you get this little rush of adrenaline and that sort of sense of if you have you know if you put the people who you love in danger what are you doing that for a story and so I, I was glad they were able to convey that human element of the story. In, in some ways, it's very, it's been very cathartic to write the book. And in Money Men, I put in lots of details about our family and sort of these, partly because you just have that contrast. And also you need those moments of like, it's, I seem to find my life turning into this sort of spy adventure and you need some respite of, let's just have some normal domesticity for a moment and bake a cake. I wondered what would you say to other investigative journalists maybe going through a similar thing, maybe not quite as insane. Some journalists do have stories like this. What would you say to them? I do want to say I'm definitely no authority on investigative journalism. I've been very lucky to have one incredible, crazy, wild investigation. I'm conscious that that we don't want to overstate my expertise on this. But I think some of the things that you can learn from it is the patience that's required. I can't remember who said it, but basically investigative journalism is just like normal journalism, just with more time. So it was, I was very lucky that sort of the FT recognized the importance of the story and effectively said, okay, don't do anything else, just focus on this. And I got to spend two months sitting in a bunker, pouring through documents. And I don't I think one of the important lessons if you're trying to do this is the importance of editors. So I'll give you two examples. One is that, so Paul Murphy, I worked very closely with, and he's in the film as well. He's this cracking old school journalist who's been a bit around the block, shall we say. And he, his approach is to let journalists follow their nose and give them encouragement and advice when they need to. So right back at the beginning when, you know, I'm scratching my head over what is this funny little company, 
Paul just said, okay, pick one part of it and just go there and knock on the door. So I fly off to Bahrain chasing this sort of hunch and some things in the document that I'm trying to prove. And so it's having that editor who will recognize something and point you in the right direction and clear the space for you to do it is very important. But there's also another example of how important it is to carry the editors with you. There's actually a moment that I talk about in the book where Reuters blink. So they publish this terrific investigation about this town in concert up in Durham, which is the hub for money laundering. We feature it in the documentary. And part of that is due to Reuters' terrific reporting all about how money was flowing through this little town for all sorts of dubious online businesses. But the thing is, when Reuters published that story back in 2016, they took Wirecard's name out of it, out of legal, under legal pressure. And I think you'd have to ask Reuters exactly why they did that. And they declined to comment when I asked them about it for the book. But my understanding really is that great reporter Alistair Powell had gone and got the story on his own initiative. It wasn't really his beat. And so when it came to the crunch, he was relatively new. And I don't think that he had an editor fighting for the story, which is what you need when you start to get that pushback and that legal pressure. You need someone, a stakeholder who cares about it to push the investigation through. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've already touched on being able to fly to Bahrain in the documentary, Flying to Singapore. You can see that sort of the resources the FT was putting behind it. And as you say, giving you the time to dedicate yourself to it. How important is it to have so many resources behind you, but also are enough publishers still doing that? Is there a risk that we might lose that space? That's one of the reasons why I think it's been really terrific that the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority has just come out and put a notice to practicing lawyers saying, don't abuse things like insisting on secrecy of correspondence when there's no justification for it and making legal threats to people who don't have equivalent resources or legal advice. What we saw with the oligarchs and various people like that were using very expensive law firms to squash criticism. Wirecard did the same. They used shillings, Herbert Smith Freehills, Jones Day. I always like to name check them. And so I think we don't have a quality of arms, particularly in corporate reporting. You're going up against large companies with effectively unlimited resources sometimes. And I think as well in some ways, I was very lucky because the mistake Wirecard made was to attack the reputation of the Financial Times itself because it said we were corrupt and we were the FT had somehow given its pages over to this criminal reporter the FT couldn't walk away from the story we go from when i fly to singapore take a indirect flight fly an extra 1000 miles and change to save the FT 100 pounds and then you fast forward a few months and it's oh right so now we've got a £100,000 legal bill for that case. We spent more hundreds of thousand pounds on this internal investigation we had to conduct. Me and Stefania have got criminal lawyers who charge €600 Euros an hour. And, you know, money wasn't an object at that point because it was more existential than that. It was, we literally can't as an organisation let them attempt to damage our brand like that. Ultimately, it's really important for the publisher to, as you're saying, stand by the journalists and take it all the way through. 
at a certain point. Yeah, and I think what I would hope publishers would recognise is the value that funding investigative journalism does for your organisation because you get the brand benefit because really, what are we after? Great stories. And investigations is one way to get tremendous stories that people want to read. But it also has, I think, these sort of halo effects and that you develop a culture within the newsroom that leads to aggressive reporting. The FT has had lots and lots of terrific stories since the Wirecard affair. That was two years ago. We were leading on the Greensill scandal, for instance. There's been some terrific reporting just today on uh, Axel Springer. So I think you get that sort of benefit. And what I found as well is if whistleblowers with people with information see your publication as a place trying to do these sorts of stories, they will come to you. But obviously, as you already mentioned as well, the FT did, there was a point where it had to do and commission its own investigation. Was that a low point for you or did you always understand why? Actually, yes to both parts, because that was genuinely the lowest moment. Because the rational part of my brain knew that we had to do something. Lionel Barber was very clear that he completely backed us, but the noise had become so great. And it's one of, it's one of the most bizarre moments in the documentary, isn't it? Where you discover what has caused the F, brought the FT to this point involving a fake shake and a nightclub owner. But... We reach that point and we say the only way to get ahead of the story is to conduct an internal investigation and rationally understood it. I knew he was doing it because of the broader FT brand. But at the same time, that sort of, I slightly counted on that journalistic protection. Nothing's going to happen to me because the police will care far more about somebody having their legs broken than esoteric financial crimes. But suddenly I felt very lonely because there's all this noise. People on Twitter are calling you a criminal. I'm under investigation in Germany. Now the FT is as well. It's a lot of smoke, right? And I knew that my, my career could be over at this point. Reputation sunk. And it also, it felt like they might get away with it. While we were doing the investigation, they went and raised one and a half billion euros in new debt. Yeah, a lot of money. But then obviously you were cleared and a point in the documentary I enjoyed was Lionel Barber saying, I want you to draw blood. Does it start to become personal and does that matter? Is there a way to avoid that? So I'm not a big fan of that sort of American pose of dispassionate neutrality when it comes to journalism, because I think it's a fiction. Everything you write involves a choice. The words, the framing, it's impossible to pretend that there is no angle. There is no sort of understanding. And I feel like fairness to the subject is a sort of more attainable and justifiable goal. You might think they're a fraud, but we have certain procedures and things that we go through. We're going to get their version of events. We're going to share it with the reader. We're going to treat them reasonably. So I think you can do that while coming from a clear perspective that we're locked in a war with this company and we have to show the world the truth of it. And I think that was what, you know, was motivating Lionel Barber when he said, I want to draw blood. I want an exocet. I want to kill them. Because we had seen enough to know deep down that this was a criminal company. And after everything we've been through, I think it would also, it would be ridiculous to pretend that we could be dispassionate about it. But I realise 
that is, you can't do that on every story. And that's a slightly unusual situation. Yeah, of course. And you already mentioned as well about obviously it, the way it took over your life. I can see you've still got a the Jan Marsalek wanted poster behind you. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just lots of journalists might have this at some point where something's completely taking over their life. How do you have any tips for any keeping healthy boundaries, especially um, as you said, the story was it's finished two years ago. You've been doing um, your book and stuff since then, so it's not really actually stopped. I have an amazing and wonderful wife, Charlotte, who was incredibly supportive throughout the whole thing and very understanding, as I'm saying to her. Yeah, we're worried our phones might be tapped. Can we just put them in the other room while we have a conversation about something? That sort of behaviour. And it really did take over my life. And I didn't have a choice about it because Wirecard had made it impossible to walk away from the story, called me a criminal. So it is very hard to put it down. And But it's also, as a journalist, you can't really wish for a better story. So like the guy who's been looking over my shoulder as I spent a year writing the book, essentially trying to get into the head of this fascinating character who's like part whiz kid who drops out of high school to start a tech company, part bumbling wannabe who's making it up as he's going along, but with this weird James Bond-like fixation where he's making friends with the former head of Libyan intelligence. He takes his holiday in Syria with Russian mercenaries. Who could not wish for a story like that? So I sort of, whilst it was terrible, the journalist in me is at the same time was going, wow, I can't wait till one day I'm going to be able to tell the world about this and they are not going to believe it. Is it an odd feeling as well to know that something you write can have such a sort of massive and immediate impact on a share price. I know that, and this probably applies to lots of FT stories, not just Wirecard. And I know that you're going to say their share price kept bouncing back despite what you wrote, but obviously ultimately it did have a massive impact. So do you feel oddly powerful? Oh, that's a good question. I've not been asked that one before. (laughs) You definitely get a pit in your stomach when you write a story and suddenly the share price is starts moving as soon as it goes live. And financial journalism is unusual in that respect, that you get an immediate sign of this story matters and people are reacting to it. And that is fascinating. And I guess Paul Murphy, who was the editor who worked with me on all these stories, who's in the film, filmed in his favourite restaurant, Sweetings. He always says, you've got a good story because you hit publish and then you almost throw up because you're like, I'm pretty sure this is true. This is definitely true, right? Well, I've done everything I can. It's going to have an impact. And so there was always that feeling just before you published, particularly with the Wirecard stories, that, okay, I think I've done everything right. Is there anything I've missed? Oh, my God. But And then so when you do publish and then it starts, the share price starts moving. It's this incredible validation. But also with Wirecard, it was, the, it was also this incredible frustration because – we would write stories and then nothing would happen. And you'd be like, that was the smoking gun. We had, there were all these different smoking guns. But when there's a moment in the film where we, dis- where we go to look for a, a payments company and instead we discover a Pomeranian. And you have moments like that and you think, that's it. That is the smoking gun that is going to convince everyone. And when it doesn't, that's incredibly frustrating. But yeah, it definitely adds a certain excitement to writing about companies. Yeah, God, I bet. So... Finally, I'm guessing the 
documentary being on Netflix will reach a lot of people that wouldn't normally read FT journalism and might not know anything about the Wirecard story. I was just wondering to finish, what do you hope those people will get get out of it? I think the first thing that we wanted to do with the documentary was just tell this amazing story so that people could enjoy it and marvel at it and sort of understand that this stuff actually happened. And, and there are deeper things within it that you sort of, by entertaining people, you also want to point out, by the way, money laundering is quite this big thing which happens all over the place. And because of cracks in the system, it was just going on in plain sight and nothing was done about it. And when you don't do anything about the small crimes, well, guess what? They turn into much bigger crimes. And I, it's one of the things that I hope for it is to be able to bring this story beyond the normal FT readership and give them a taste of the strange worlds that exist within finance, these ragtag mobs of speculators called short sellers. This sort of circle of bandit nightclub owners who spend their days hunting on stock market gossip. But the fact that, and also we hear actually a lot about dirty money. And the story is in some respects, what happens when the dirty money comes after you and the power these big companies have and the sort of enablers who help them resist genuine criticism. So if we can bring just a small flavor of that to like the wider world, then I'll be delighted. Well, that was great. Thanks, Charlotte. Great to hear from Dan. It's good to have a story where the nice guys win, isn't it? The bad guys get taken down. So it's a great, it's a great yarn, isn't it? But I guess, what do you think of the big, the big learnings for publishers from all this? Not everyone, not ever, very few people can probably afford to spend the amount of money that the FT has on this investigation. But I suppose we all, at some level, are weighing up the kind of investment and risks versus potential rewards from doing this sort of thing. Absolutely. Everyone will encounter that balance and decision making at some point, just probably not on this scale, I would imagine. But one learning that I think is applicable to lots of different news organisations is what Dan said about the importance of editors and how important it was to have investigations editor Paul Murphy, giving him the time and space to follow his nose, but then give him some advice when he gets stuck and that sort of thing. Basically, what I'm trying to say is if you're just letting some journalists loose, but not giving them that right editor who is going to make sure they're on the right path, then that's probably a foolhardy and a bit more of a waste of your time. Dan also told a story about a different publication touching on this story, but being slightly cowed by the legal risk and not naming Wirecard and how Dan thought that was because because there hadn't been an editor to fight for it. So I think that's something really important that publishers can bear in mind what a difference a good editor can make to an investigations team like this. I mean, I always think there's probably, you work very hard all year round, don't you? But there might be one story in the year that's really going to be the one that's going to have an impact and get you noticed and which people will remember. And I guess it's the editor needs to decide which one that is and then really go for it and give people the time because you get so much out of it in terms of not just the readership, but also the kudos and the brand and the morale and all the rest of it. Look, thanks for all that, Charlotte. You can go out and see Scandal on Netflix. Well, you can't go out and stay in and see it on Netflix. (laughs) 
So you've been listening to The Future of Media Explained. With me, Dominic Ponsford, Press Gazette's UK editor, Charlotte Tobit, and expertly engineered by Adrian Bradley. Listen to this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe it, like it, leave us a nice review. And as always, you can read more about this and the other issues we cover on pressgazette.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.